So hi, folks. Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight for this little celebration. Um, as you know, we just released book two in the How to Heal Our Divides series. And uh, we're really pleased about that. It's almost a year to the date after the first How to Heal Your Divides book. And so, you know, we've got several of the book contributors here with us this evening and um, uh, really appreciate all of their work and all their contributions to, to this effort. Um, so I think what I'd like to do, you know, to start off is just to let several of the folks um, introduce themselves and talk a little bit about the chapter that they wrote, um, the organization that they, you know, talked about, um, and um, then, you know, we'll go from there. If, if anyone wants to ask questions, you know, feel free to write something in the chat box or, you know, raise your hand on the Zoom portal and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to everyone's questions. So maybe, Michelle, I think you were the first one here that arrived. Uh, would you like to, to speak first? <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. So um, I absolutely want to photo, follow protocol here. I'd also like to mention that the co-author of the chapter is coming right back on. Would it be possible to wait until Reverend Beckford comes back okay, on sure. so that we no, can that's speak fine. about it together? Yeah. Sure. Thank you fine. so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think Jean was next. So, Jean, why don't we let you go? Uh, your co-authors are not here, but um, I, I'm yeah. sure you can represent them well. Well, uh, my, my, I will mention my co-authors, and uh, they know more than I do about this, but it, my co-authors are Liz uh, Stuckey Sunday, and her father, Noel Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Noel Paul Stuckey uh, of Peter, Paul, and Mary is her father. They co-founded Music to Life about 22 years ago, um, and it started out um, as a songwriting contest, uh, uh, giving a platform for musicians, and over the last um, 22 years, they have uh, changed it in a, in a lot of ways, and um, I um, one of the main ways is that it has become um, uh, sort of a, it supports uh, uh, songwriters and singers, artists of social change in a way of, in the way of giving them encouragement through giving them tools for working in their communities and in their own communities. And I think that is the distinctive feature of the work that Music Delight like does, it, which is to um, expect their um, their musicians to be not only performing but also working with a nonprofit or another community organization in the community and um, working together with a project that is hands on and in touch with the communities in which they live. So I'll I'll wait to see if my co-writers show up. I will, I'm sure they will want to. I know there were many folks that wanted to be here this evening and just weren't able to because you know other commitments came up. Um, but I mean, Gene, the thing that you know really impressed me about Music to Life was that it seemed like a combination of a few different things. You know, obviously music, social justice, entrepreneurship, um, leadership training. Um, is that the way you see it too? Uh, certainly, um, yes. The um, many times, and I, 
I have hit something on my computer screen, which <laughs> which is distracting me from the rest of you, um, and it's covering it up. But um, yeah, they uh, they have uh, started a program called um, the Accelerator Music Accelerator, and have uh, divide, given people who uh, the artists who work with them a toolkit for um, presenting their ideas for. Um, you know, giving them some business tools because many uh, artists are not familiar with some of the uh, skills they need to promote themselves and to um, write grants, for example, and to um, you know, work in the community uh, doing networking in other ways. So um, they give tools for artists to go off the stage and have the kinds of skills uh, that will help them uh, work with nonprofits in their communities. And so if people want to find out more, they can go to musictolife.org. Is that what it is? Right. Yes. Musictolife.org. And um, what are some of the ways that people could support that effort? Uh, well, they do have a range of people across the country but, uh, who uh, work with them in various training uh, areas, various areas of the country. And so uh, they can use volunteers who are, are um, for promotion, for teaching, for uh, networking, for uh, using their their um, skills to um, be a part of, of the um, the actual training and the support of musicians. But they're also um, giving uh, giving plenty of people opportunities to support through their uh, through financially because they do have. Um, ongoing um, concerts during the year, uh, online concerts, and um, their work uh, does require financial support, and that's a good way to uh, involve other people as well. Good, good. Well, thanks, Jane, for, you know, contributing to the, the book and, you know, for all the work that you're doing together with uh, Noel and Liz. So uh, I see that uh, Sheila's joined us. Um, Sheila and Michelle co-authored one of the chapters. Would you all like to uh, tell us about Four Reels? Greetings, Brian. Thank you again for the invitation. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Um, I am Sheila Beckford. Um, Sheila M. Beckford. I am a pastor in the United Methodist Church, and my partner, <laughs> um, and for reals, um, is uh, Reverend Dr. Um, e. Michelle Letter. Um, for reals, we wrote Anti-Racism for Reals, um, a book that is uh, basically we, we created this model to help those who are, who want to do the work of anti-racism. We're not trying to force people. We are. We, this book is written for people who are who want to do this anti-racism work, and feel like they they have to wait until they have taken fifteen trainings <laughs> to actually start the work. Um, the book is. I how we model the book is. You are doing the work as you are reading um, each page. We it's is very practical, um, and is is based. In, to, in four reels, and I'm going to pass it over to Reverend Michelle Letter so she can talk about the four. 
uh, thank you so much, Reverend Beckford. The uh, the four reels are um, to say that we're doing anti-racism for reels, that we're really doing it. But also there are literal four reels. So it's real talk with real strategies in real time for real change. And real talk talks not only about how we talk about racism, but also the actual wording. So placing the wording that needs to happen to switch over from the logic system of racism to the logic system of anti-racism. Real strategies, um, we talk about entry points rather than journey language. We believe that every single person can be doing anti-racism work right now when they choose to do so. So uh, we create entry points for any person, depending on uh, their racial identity, what we call racial positionality, um, and or whatever experience or skill sets they already bring with them. Um, anybody can start with those uh, real strategies, and we call them action now learning engagements. They are participatory at every stage of the way. So at the end of every chapter, uh, including the one that we wrote for this book, there are learning engagements, very real, concrete strategies you can use right away. Uh, real time represents our belief that uh, racism happens in real time, so anti-racism has to happen in real time. And so that's going to mean um, maybe we need to prepare scripts ahead of time. We need to think through exactly what we're going to say. Or if we you know, get caught without being able to respond right away, we need to take the time to prepare for the next time. And then real change means that there's accountability and transparency um, associated with templates, associated with um, progress reports and ways that you can change what you're doing on the way so you don't have to wait until the end of a strategy to be able to make the adjustments to actually interrupt and dismantle racism. So our book is set up in that way uh, with racial positionality and the four reels and so is the chapter that we've written for this book. Very cool, very cool. So um, as you mentioned, there's a book called four reels so if you if you go on to amazon or google just type the number four r-e-a-l-s all <laughs> combined together and you'll find sheila and michelle's book and um now i know you guys were working on a website i i can't remember there's so many different people that i work with yours is up though right it will be is live we it will be live tomorrow Tomorrow, okay. <laughs> cool, that's wonderful. Yep. And, yeah, and so what, what's the domain name for that going to be? That's antiracismforreels.com. Uh, antiracismforreels.com. Anti mm -hmm. mm -hmm. okay. With the number four. So number it's four. all one uh, term, antiracism, the number four, reels.com. Cool. And the book is actually anti-racism. Four reels. Ah, sure, right. sure. Yep. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking of the four reels. Right. Um, <laughs> so, which is a really nice, catchy term. You know, easy to remember and, you know, <laughs> easy to know what it's about. So, um, <clears throat> now, I, I don't remember. Do you all do training programs or other kinds of things besides the book? We absolutely do. We offer um, sessions and trainings. We do consulting work. Um we also, we also help with drafting content and, um, and speech writing. So what are some of the different ways that people can get involved with your 
program? Well, we've worked with a host of different uh, kinds of organizations. Some of them are local uh, organizations that might be a local church or or one branch of an organization. Um, and we've worked with different groups that are conference-wide or have multiple groups kind of tapping into the central organization. Um, and again, we've done different kinds of things. We've done consulting work, like monthly consulting work with executive leadership teams or, or decision-making teams. We've done organizational-wide uh, what other folks call workshops, but we tend to call sessions because we want to stay away from the kind of one and done kind of checkbox thing. Um, and then we've also helped uh, different folks write, you know, certain people because of the position that they're in will get invited to give an anti-racism talk or a keynote or a speech or a different whatever, um, but may not necessarily be trained in anti-racism. And so we've helped uh, do some of that. We've helped create strategies, uh, anti-racism strategies, um, DEI strategies when they're connected directly with anti-racism, um, anti-oppression anti covenant um, agreements, uh, which for us would replace like a safe space or a brave space um, covenant or agreement for dialogues. We kind of span... Uh, quite a few ways to get involved. So if there's any anti-racism work that folks want to be doing, uh, we can help do that. We've also worked with groups where um, they have an anti-racism assessment tool um, and either they want to know how to use it or we help them figure out what, what parts of that tool are actually anti-racist anti-racism, that actually do the work of anti-racism and don't um, continue to perpetrate it within an organization. We also look at their policies, like if they're hiring, their hiring policy, their onboarding policies, um, things that's written so that we can, we can actually point out and help them see where it perpetrates racism hmm. and how it be an anti-racist anti-racist document and enforced. Good, good. Well, I encourage everyone to check out the book, check out the new website coming out tomorrow. That's just uh, wonderful and appreciate you, you all being part of the uh, program. Thank, Thank you so much. We appreciate the offer, the invitation. <laughs> so maybe um, next, Jen Adams, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, Out on the Lakeshore? Sure, sure. I'm happy to. Thanks, Brian, for the invitation. Good to be here tonight and, and to be a part of all of this. Um, I am an Episcopal priest in Holland, Michigan, where I've served as a rector of our congregation. Um, I've been in this area for almost 28 years and served as rector for about 15. Um, and live in a, an area that is relatively, for lack of better words, uh, in terms of uh, religion, in terms of politics, conservative. Um, and have worked, I founded a group called Holland is Ready, uh, which evolved with a couple of organizations into uh, what is now a community center and organization called Out on the Lakeshore. And we've been focused on making this, uh, initially the city of, of Holland, um, but also our region more LGBTQ plus uh, friendly, welcoming, uh, including working for uh, equal uh, uh, 
rights. And uh, specifically, the chapter that I wrote for this book is about the work we did on a discrimination, non-discrimination ordinance that passed recently after about 10 years of work. Um, we Holland is Ready came to be uh, because of an incident that happened locally about 11 years ago now. And uh, it, it, it was a, a speaker that had been invited to come in um, and was disinvited once uh, a leader of a, another uh, institution in town realized that he was gay. And um, it, one of the reasons for the disinvitation was uh, we're not ready for this. And so the response from some local students uh, and then a larger community organization was Holland is ready. Uh, we began basically uh, after this incident um, because I gathered, uh, sent out an email to friends saying we need to come together and talk about this. We gathered, sent out a question, uh, what can we do? And literally that was the question that launched this movement that became Holland is Ready. First night, I expected a few friends who were being kind and responding to my email and over a hundred people came. It was a, a moment in which we could sit around tables, share ideas, set priorities. And um, again, from there, Holland is Ready moved forward. We've been doing advocacy education in a, a very relational way when that's possible here. Um, and um, after we'd been going for about a year or so, a community member brought forward uh, the suggestion of a, that our local council change the non-discrimination ordinance to include um, orientation, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Our first run at the ordinance, we lost by one vote. And 10 years later, after um, lots of different kinds of work in the community, we're able to, to pass uh, what is now one of the most comprehensive non-discrimination ordinances in the state. Um, we have over time grown Holland, um, Holland Pride. Uh, our local PFLAG chapter rolled in with out on the lakeshore Holland Pride, a group we launched called Gender Safe and Holland is Ready. And we are now under this umbrella that is out on the lakeshore um, with the presence not only of a long fought city ordinance, but also a community center, lots of supportive businesses, a summer pride festival that brings in thousands of people, and some changed hearts and minds and relationships that have um, been built over time in ways that I wouldn't have expected they could be when this started. Um, and, and also some, some painful, difficult um, moments that I talk about a bit in the chapter as well. So where do you think it goes from here? That's a very good question, Brian. Um, given what's going on in our, our nation, um, I, I don't know is, is the truth of it. I, I think some of the practices that helped establish uh, the kind of change that we hope to see need to remain the same and need to um, be more consistent and even stronger in our um, striving to maintain relational dimensions uh, of change, as well as standing up um, consistently as a presence in this community. Um, 
on on varieties of fronts that we're talking about tonight. In some ways, we're more divided than or, or more visibly divided than when I began this work. Mm. Um, at the same time, it might just be that those divisions are more visible than they were. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, out on Lakeshore, I think it's got their own website, right? Yeah, uh, out on lakeshore.org. Uh, it's a, like I said, a community center with lots of different programming, um, a group called Gender Safe, a group called Family and Friends, uh, varieties of events uh, coming up, lots of different Pride events, the central festival that we have, but also different pride nights, uh, art nights, evenings out in the community, um, different educational and social events that um, all kind of run through the theme of pride for the month of June. So you can check out out on the Lakeshore's uh, website for access and support. Good, good. Well, thanks, Jan, so much for all of your work and for contributing to this book. I was really glad about this. Uh, Jen and I very first met at the first Writing for Your Life conference that ever existed in Holland, Michigan in uh, 2017. So um, we've been friends ever since and uh, really glad to see all that you've accomplished, Jen. Well, very grateful, Brian, for the invitation and your encouragement as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So maybe next, uh, how about Therese? Therese Taylor Stinson is here with us. Hi, Therese. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing great and almost missed this uh, meeting <laughs> because Catherine, you know, Catherine Meeks, who's in your book, yes. is speaking at the cathedral with David Brooks tonight, and she's really giving them hell. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Boy, if I would have known I was up against that, I would have moved my, <laughs> uh, my little soiree here. I don't. I thought maybe it, would, it started at seven. I thought it might be just an hour, but they were going over. I said, "Oh my goodness, I need to leave," but um, it may be also recorded so that you can pick it up later. Good, good. So for those that don't know uh, who Catherine Meeks is, uh, she leads the Absalom Jones Center for Racial uh, Healing in uh, Atlanta. Kind of the originally part of the Episcopal church I, I think it still is officially but they do a lot of work beyond just the denomination it and, was part of the atlanta diocese and now it's part of the larger church okay mm -hmm. and she said that evening catherine was one of the um contributors to the first how to heal our divides book and Therese is one of the contributors to the second how to heal our divides book so Therese, why don't you talk a little bit about your chapter and, and your work so um, specifically, Brian asked me to talk about uh, an event that we held over the past. We had six events um, organized over the last seven years, starting in about 2015, called um, the Racial Awareness Festival. And that festival came out of a, I was involved in something in the PCUSA called 1001 Worshipping Communities. And one of those worship, worshiping communities in National Capital Presbytery, I was working with a pastor there. And it, this was uh, when Barack Obama was being nominated as our president. And um, everybody was saying that um, we were, uh, post-racial society. So we ended up in this conversation about whether this was a post-racial uh, society. 
Um, at some point, I, I ended up going to a spiritual director's international conference and was involved with an interplay um, activity where we were partnered with other people um, to talk about our experience of race. The, the room was overwhelmingly white, not a lot of blacks in the room, but lucky me, I was next to a younger white person, white woman, and we partnered together. And the exercise after doing some dancing and playing around and sort of releasing any tension we brought into the room, we sat across from the other and we were asked to very briefly tell something that was our first uh, experience of race, race. And so with this person, I, I have no problem with those experiences when I was four years old to start from the beginning. Um, once a young boy's father, I was looking for someone to play with and a young boy's father called me the N-word and told his son to come into the house. And so um, that was my first experience that I shared with my partner and with that, she couldn't really talk to me back to tell me her experiences. So we kept trying, going back and forth. I wasn't holding it against her, but I did notice she was uncomfortable. And eventually, I think the leadership realized she was uncomfortable. So we made a pause. They tried to regroup us. We got back together and they said, okay, let's do this again. And still, she didn't have a lot to say, but I participated in the exercise with her. At the end of the, um, the session, we were packing up our things to leave. And before I leave, she said, wait, I want to tell you something. And she told me that she was a middle-aged uh, person that lived in the Midwest and um, was a special ed teacher. And in her classroom were mostly Black boys. And from listening to me, she said she couldn't find anything to match what I was saying. So she couldn't bring it up. So it, it, she just remained silent, but she wanted me to know that everything that I had said to her changed her mind about the way she was handling her classroom. And she was going back to that Midwest West school and changed the way she treated the kids in her classroom. So I ran back to DC and to my 1001 worshiping community and said, we have to share this in the church. <laughs> and, um, and so it took a lot. So even though there was seven years of organizing, the first year was just getting anybody to buy it, <laughs> you know, and to also donate financially to it. The first um, year we had, we found a church that was willing to um, allow us to use their facility. They had the technology and everything to do it. The first year was a, a good success. We had um, the DC Black Lives Matter uh, person talking with uh, Katrina Brown, who wrote a film, a PBS film about her her family uncovering that her family was the largest um, ex transatlantic slave trader who were from Rhode Island, and so they uh, did a dialogue between the two of them. Um, uh, the the um, Black Lives Matter person just sharing her experiences as a Black woman and Katrina sharing her experiences of uncovering her family as one of the largest. And then just their experiences, they were both in their 30s, their experiences um, as people in the world um, with, with race. Um, that was so successful. We did it over the next uh, three or four years. And um, in the last one that we did live, 
uh, we had actually the interplayers come. Uh, um, Christine, um, I'm sorry, uh, I'm, I'm slipping on her name at the moment, but Shoyinka Rahim and uh, Cynthia Witten Henry, who is the co-founder of Interplay, and um, they gave us some ideas about how the parasympathetic uh, and sympathetic nerves, nervous systems work and how we're all connected in a way. And they came up with uh, a workshop called Changing the Race Dance, which is the one that I was doing at the Spiritual Directors International Conference. And Shoyinka did that. And it was a mixed group of um, everybody that was attending and, and across age as well, you know, generations as well as, um, you know, race was concerned. And after that um, day, at the end of the day, one older woman, a uh, white woman in the Midwest in her 80s, um, befriended a nine-year-old girl in Washington, D.C., and they are still, they still remain pen pals. So this was really an exciting, we had, um, Ibram, I think uh, Ibram Kendi was, our, no, it wasn't. He wasn't our last live event, but we had Ibram Kendi come and talk to us. And so then anyway, the pandemic happened and that sort of stopped our live performance from happening. And so then we had our first um, virtual event, which was very exciting. And then um, in 2021, we had um, the, the, um, own the founder of the Tent of Nations in Israel, a Palestinian guy, uh, come and talk to us. And Jen Marlowe, who actually lives here in this in the D.C. area, I think in Virginia, um, she's a filmmaker, and she showed a film about a young boy, a young Palestinian boy who was killed, and had young people. Um, interact the feelings that they had and what went on in their family during that incident. In every one of those incidents, after they were over, people would come to me and sometimes send me cards or gifts. They would go places and, and they would heard I appreciated certain poetry poets or writers and they would send me books and they would tell me how they were changing their careers or how they were going to their churches and starting up you know some kind of groups to talk about race for themselves and so um the although it was a lot of struggle getting it started it, and we were a small group that really stuck with it through the years we made a lot of um very great changes in that I am also um, the founding managing member of a group called the Spiritual Directors of Color Network, and I'm a spiritual director at heart. All of this, as far as I'm concerned, comes out of the spiritual director in me. And, and in our group, that, that network, which um, we were loosely formed for about six years, and then it's been eight years that we have been incorporated as a nonprofit <clears throat> to... Um, We've written three books. Um, I've been the editor for two of those books. Um, and the third book turned out to be what we were always trying to do anyway, was to make a curriculum um, that anybody could use in spiritual direction that actually addressed the spirituality of people of color, something that we all found absent uh, um, when we went through spiritual guidance programs that still remain predominantly white. And so um, that group is still um, continuing and supported the Racial Awareness Festival. And now we, um, I am awaiting um, yet a fourth book, not directly 
uh, connected with the network anymore, but now one that I'm right that I was invited to write on my own about Harriet Tubman, um, which is uh, about Harriet Tubman as a public mystic, and how um, and how as Thurman would talk about finding the genuine in oneself, how um, Harriet Tubman had to have some sort of internalized freedom within herself to have done the things she's she's done. And so the book talks about her story, a little bit of my story, a little bit about what has happened in our world over the past four or five years. And, and in the end um, of each chapter, I have something called Harriet's Apothecary, where um, instead of medicines, different um, writers that might also um, give some advice about how we can find our own internalized freedom to live in the world differently from the way we do now. Wow, that's quite a saga, isn't it? <laughs> it's it, yeah, it's hard to get through. I'm trying not to <laughs> so be the, talking forever. The, <laughs> the the racial awareness event. Do you think that that'll come back after the pandemic? Um, I'm not sure where where it'll go for now. I, you know, what I have done is released it, you know, and if it should come back in some kind of way and I'm involved, you know, and it seems like the right thing to do, fine. If not, um, I think there are lots of other ways we can engage with people um, to try, as, as Catherine is doing, I don't know if they're still talking now, but she's giving them hell, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, Therese, thanks so much uh, for sharing with us and uh, appreciate you being a part of this program. And thank you for inviting me. So up next, I see Luther Smith is with us. Luther is from uh, Candler uh, School of Theology at Emory University and um, wrote a chapter about the interfaith children's movement. Luther, can you tell folks a little bit about that? Good evening, Brian. And all and especially a greeting to Michelle, who I've known over the years um, there at Emory University. Um, yes, the Interfaith Children's Movement started in 2001 as we were aware that so many of the issues for the benefit of Georgia's children are decided at the state legislature. Um, and when we talk about caring for children, when the state passes terrible legislation, you're always in a reactive mode to try and correct something. And in addition to, in some sense, responding and reacting when, when needed, we wanted to be in a more proactive uh, mode in caring for our children because the, the real uh, destiny of tens of thousands of children are often affected by a single piece of legislation. Um, we know that uh, just about every major uh, faith uh, tradition really celebrates the significance of children, and yet um, it was difficult to find these various faith traditions down at the state capitol uh, where legislation was being decided. The only uh, really people who were uh, overtly of faith were conservative, um, most doing homeschooling, 
and therefore had their children down at the state capitol with them when legislation related to children would, would emerge. And they, with their children, would uh, take positions on legislation that really were not for all of Georgia's children. It, it would often follow a very, um, not just religiously conservative, but politically conservative perspective that I think uh, undermined what it really meant to be responding to the needs of children and having a heart for children. So knowing that every faith tradition has this um, um, statement and commitment for children, uh, we felt like we should be calling faith traditions to the state capitol in matters of advocacy for children and not just in celebrating children, but uh, also doing the kinds of things that make a difference in the lives of children. Uh, we had meetings, people, especially from uh, the Christian, Jewish, Muslim tradition, but also we had uh, Baha'i uh, very involved with us. Um, and at times uh, the Hindu community and um, after 9-11, persons from the uh, Sikh community. So we would meet. And we decided to launch the Interfaith Children's Movement with a breakfast that would bring uh, people from these various traditions together. Um, we had Marin Wright Edelman as our speaker. And when it comes to caring for children, you cannot have anyone who's more internationally recognized as uh, an advocate for children than Marin Wright Edelman. We had the mayor. Uh, all sorts of political figures. We had every major uh, media outlet in Atlanta uh, present. And toward the end of that breakfast, that was an inspiring event, just packed with, with uh, people, every table filled. Um, we heard cell phones going off and people started rushing to leave the room. And of course, that was September the 11th. Uh, 2001. Uh, we came out of that without any publicity, as you would expect. But what also came out of that uh, was a, a number of persons who said, I was so distraught over what had happened on September the 11th. And I was so, at the same time, anxious as well as distraught about the reaction especially against uh, Muslims, that it felt to me in terms of something that could be more creative, that the Interfaith Children's Movement would be a way in which I could be invested in uh, making a response at this point in time. And uh, since then, we have been uh, very active in working on issues of advocacy and education. Uh, to give you some example, we've worked with the uh, Children's Defense Fund <clears throat> when they were uh, seeking um, to have uh, signatures on a significant legislation of federal legislation regarding children. Uh, we delivered the most uh, signatures uh, than any other group in the, in the nation. I think we had something like 7,000 signatures that we collected. We um, have been very active with issues of uh, sexual trafficking of children. 
Um, one of the accomplishments that we had about four years ago was the passage of Ra uh, Rachel's Law, which is uh, something that emerged out of also a constitutional amendment in Georgia. As you might imagine, that's very difficult to get, but working in coalition with other groups, uh, we were able to deliver on that, which taxed the adult entertainment industry to uh, provide financial resources for um, the rehab programs, the resilience programs that exist for children because these programs are underfunded. Uh, there are not enough um, uh, facilities available uh, for all of the children who are in need coming out of their traumatic experience. But the passing of Rachel's Law uh, took a long time, but it came through. Uh, the uh, Juvenile Justice Code in Georgia had not been changed in some 43 years, and we worked in coalition with other organizations, such that after, I think it was six or seven years, that finally was changed, and it was considered one of the model um, juvenile justice codes in the country, uh, affected all sorts of, of issues, such as defense of children, being certain they were not uh, being housed with adults, which was a practice in Georgia, and also attending to the uh, program of foster care where children are aging out of foster care without resources. And so many of them ending up on the streets or ending up um, in incarceration in their efforts to try and make some sense of, of their lives uh, without the support that they had had from the uh, foster care program. Um, we involved foster care children in the, um, in, the, in the lobbying of the state and they made a significant difference to many legislators who usually tune out when something, um, a piece of legislation is being discussed, but these children had their ears and so uh, we've been involving children in being down at the state legislature, advocating um, this whole process of their coming to an awareness of how bills will affect them, their generations and generations after them has been an educational program in, in some of the schools. Um, all of this has just been uh, enlivening for so many of us and especially working across the various faith traditions. The article that I wrote with Catherine Stanley, who's on the board of the Interfaith Children's uh, Movement, who's also on the board of the Interfaith Children's Movement, uh, focused on the way table fellowship has been crucial to us being sustained over these now 20 years. Um, it was the way we started with the breakfast that I mentioned. It's been crucial to our general meetings, uh, the food. It's been, um, it's occurred in sometimes spontaneous ways of people inviting others to dinner. Um, when um, we were going through Ramadan and there was an invitation extended by uh, one of the major masjids in the area to participate for the iftar meal. Um, our people just showed up. In fact, I think there were more of us there than there were 
people from the masjid uh, for that meal. But, you know, food is such a, it's not only common among us, but eating together in public is one of the most, not only sacred, but, but one of the most public signs of intimacy around the world. Um, remember, uh, Howard Thurman would say that uh, people who have slept together the night before would not necessarily be seen eating together in public the next day. Uh, it's, it's more a sign of, of intimacy than perhaps any other type of public display that, that we have. Um, so we've had this sign of intimacy among us, eating together in public, understanding how important it is, the sensitivities there are around food in terms of meals that are appropriate to a faith tradition and foods that are not, um, the way in which we prepare together, the way in which we uh, are recognizing the calendar. And rather than, as, as many interfaith groups do, rather than focusing on how different are we in terms of our uh, various faith traditions? Um, how common are we in terms of our faith traditions? Uh, we have chosen to focus on children that are common to all of us and to be asking the question, what benefits the children? What is working against the children? And how do we work together such that we are a sign of beloved community by showing not only care for our children, but also the way in which we uh, respect one another, we see one another, we engage with one another for the sake of our children. Um, and the article especially speaks to that dimension of our work for healing the divide. Wow, it's just amazing, Luther. I mean, all the things that your organization has accomplished, you know, in 20 years worth is just really impressive. And, you know, thank you so much for all that work and for also sharing it with us. Thank you. Um, I mean, I know there's a website that people can go to, to learn more. Is there anything else that you want to pass along in terms of if what people want to find out more or get involved? Um, one of the things that has been, I think, really um, essential to our being here some 20 years later is the recognition of what it means to persist, um, especially when you're at the low points of an organization for whatever variety of reasons. Um, we've, we've had our mountaintop experiences. We've had um, affirmation from, of course, Andrew Young and, and uh, John Lewis uh, in terms of our work. Marin Wright Edelman um, said to us that we were the most involved advocacy organization uh, for children on an interfaith basis than she had seen. So there are all of these affirmations, but you also have such low moments when, um, you know, at general meetings, uh, there are enough people maybe to have, a uh, you know, a conversation of, of uh, less than 10, um, disappointment at events, um, the ups and downs of personnel, uh, but understanding how to persist in the low times, I think, um, have really been the lessons uh, for us that have enabled us 
to not only exist, but they really have enabled us to to move to experiences of joy and and resilience. And um, I think you know all of our organizations are organic in some way, and uh, how we are able to attend to uh, that reality of our organizations, how we are able to be stewards of our organizations, uh, really, I think, take seriously the way in which all of our organizations depend upon the way in which we are cultivating and sustaining relationships. Hmm. Well, we can all learn from that. Uh, Resilience is uh, an important thing. So Luther, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Luther, I think I remember you um, from the inauguration of Thurman's um, Backs Against the Wall at the Methodist building. Yes, we yes. were on the panel together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> good, good to see you and good to hear your words about um, hanging in there with organizations because it is difficult. Yes. <laughs> Small world. Small world. <laughs> So I know we have a couple of the other uh, book contributors on with us um, this evening. Uh, Betty, would you like to uh, unmute and, and share a little bit with us about Credence and your work? Sure, I can do that. Just a heads up, I need to teach a class in eight minutes. So. Ah, well, I'm glad we <laughs> caught you before you had to leave. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, I'm in Canada and it's Victoria. It's a holiday day today. So um, ah. I, I've been in the garden, which is maybe why I look a bit, uh, anyway, it's what it's been. Um, so the, just quickly then, uh, so organization is Credence and we're, um, we're an organization that does a lot of conflict, uh, healing work, uh, between primarily between groups, uh, also between individuals because individuals, <laughs> groups are comprised of individuals. Um, also lots of groups, those groups could be in the workplace. They could be in the community. They could be between faith groups, um, within faith groups and so forth. And the focus of my article was on self-compassion. And the reason is so much of the work, uh, so much of the work of conflict is often focused on, on well, when people are in conflict, they're often thinking about how to get the other person to change. And so much of conflict resolution training is on the process between the parties. And everything that I know about the work that I've been doing, I've been in this field for the last 29 years, is um, if you really want to see change happen, there's something that has to happen in the soul of the person first, of at least one of the parties first. There has to be a shift in the soul of at least one of those parties first. And so, you know, when I think about when I began my career 29 years ago, uh, we threw mediation at everything, just get them talking. Um, and you would interview people and go straight away to mediation. And we just don't do that anymore. And the reason we don't is because we now, um, we take every, we invite everybody to at least one session of coaching, sometimes up to six sessions of coaching before bringing them together for conversation. Because what you can, the landscapes you can cross in a one-on-one conversation uh, are so much more vast than what you can do when people are talking to each other. And if you can cross those landscapes one-on-one, you can get much further when you have the whole group together uh, for a for a conversation. Now, that's I'm thinking about interpersonal, but you can do that. You can mirror that same thing with groups. So when I'm working with two groups that are in conflict, it can be helpful to work with group A and group B separately and get them um, just to understand themselves a bit better and to understand. Um, some of their biases, some of their prejudices, some of their assumptions that they're making. And out of that self-understanding, well, all of that plus uh, how do, 
Well, there's a saying that you may have heard before. See, my mind goes going in three places at once. Let me stop. If we can do this to one-on-one, then we could, the conversation between them can be more productive. But when we work with people one-on-one, it's not simply about understanding their own biases and all that. It's also about <clears throat> nurturing a spirit of self-compassion. Because in our experience, a lot of what creates hate between people is that they hate themselves first. And because they hate themselves, they can't go to the compassion for the other because they have so much hate within for themselves. And so if we can begin to nurture a bit of compassion for themselves, their capacity to have compassion for the other tends to be awakened. And so it's this dance um, that we are always working with. We, we know that pain has happened. We're trying to help people come together to appreciate how they have hurt one another and how to build um, healing between one another. And to get there, they often, off, they often have to come to terms with the ways in which they've disappointed themselves or they have been angry and they have, um, in the pro- well, you've probably heard this saying that hanging on to resentment is like drinking poison but expecting the other person to die, right? And so how do they come to terms with the poison they've been drinking and the fact that that hate that they have tried to give to the other ends up turning inward and causing hate for themselves, uh, the hate you give others always ends up turning its face towards yourself and starts to destroy the self. And so sort of how do we heal some of that through compassion and then work towards healing the relationship between the others? So that's a little bit of what I, I talked about in that article. Yes, yes. And so um, you, you do a lot of work, you know, across the world with many different organizations. Um, you want to tell folks an enemy of your website so they can go check that out if they want to learn more? Sure. Our company name is Credence and Co. Uh, Credence with only two E's, not three. We're not like Credence Clear, Clearwater Revival. <laughs> That's C R E E D. This is C R E D. <laughs> so Credence and Co. Credence and Co. dot com, and you can find us there. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for for joining us. Uh, you know, despite the holiday, and uh, good luck with uh, your your upcoming event. <laughs> yes, yeah, in three minutes. Thanks, Brian. Nice to meet all of you. And what inspiring stories. I really, uh, really appreciate the stories I was able to hear. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye. So I know we have another um, one of our contributors, Shannon Crossbear is here. Shannon, can you um, share with us a little bit? Sure. Um, here, I'll see if I can put my camera on. There we um, go. Hey, Shannon. Hi. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm just, I kind of came in a, a few minutes late, but I'm so glad I got to join and, um, and just join this, this dynamic group doing good work in the world, right? <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, I, I always, uh, I can only look at things through the eyes from which my own cultural experience has been, which is I'm an indigenous person. I live on my homelands uh, in northern Minnesota. I'm Ojibwe and Irish, um, but I've been acculturated in my Ojibwe nation. Um, so, uh, and I and I got an opportunity to um, contribute to the first book, the first volume, I should say, and then um, was invited to kind of bring in one of the organizations that I'm working with. Um, for the second volume, and um, and I, I have to say, I'm I'm always just so um, interested in 
you know, when we talk about healing these divides is how we find ourselves in different rooms, having similar discussions, which is wonderful, but how do we get into each other's rooms? Because I think there's that added value, right, of, of um, me showing up in a place that is not kind of um, normally within my, my uh, sphere, right? And that's, to me, is what's gonna, what it's going to take, is really kind of how do we show up in each other's spaces. So in this um, iteration of the book, uh, I wrote about an organization called We the World. And I imagine that most people in this uh, in these rooms um, have heard the song "We the World," right? <laughs> A very uh, well-known song. But and this really kind of came out of some of the folks that collaborated on that song at that point in time. But "We the World" really was established after 9/11, um, and it was really about how we could uh, be able to do many of the things that healing the divides is attempting to do is like find the nuggets in the world, elevate the good that's being done, share that in some way and provide support so that we eventually become a world, not of I, but of we and can get to a point where there is no longer a them and that we see it that way. So some of the things, and there were great, Folks that, you know, right away um, kind of got on board, you know, uh, Desmond Tutu, Deepak Chopra, uh, Jane Goodall. I mean, there were a lot of kind of recognizable names, but there was also all of the rest of the world <laughs> of stuff being done. Everything from, you know, kitchen table efforts in small communities to, you know, larger kinds of things. And how were we going to find a a way to bring them together. And so um, a number of activities are, that they do, one is uh, the 11 days, they have uh, 11 campaigns for change. And the campaigns for change are all year round. Um, but the 11 days is really to highlight those campaigns. And so just even as I'm listening, Luther, I was listening to you and what you were saying about the children. One of the campaigns is on children. And they have um, and they established International Children's Month. And, uh, and for the past 16 years, we've had a, um, you know, a theme for every year. And some of those themes have been themes like uh, children love the earth, children love peace, um, children uh, uh, game on for, uh, for food sovereignty, um, all those kinds of things. So every year, there's a, a year-long platform with campaigns and activities, all free and available um, for people to participate in. Another one of the campaigns is the justice campaign. And so folks that are working for justice in this intersect between, um, also between trauma and racial justice um, and thinking about that and all of the things that we're working on. So. Um, those campaigns, there's those 11 days um, start uh, and go uh, to, 11, uh, to September 11th. So uh, the, they happen every year. And, and what happens is there's just a variety of different kind of presentations that take place. 
there's activities in different locations um, on those on one of those themes for um, each of the 11 days. And so and, and it's one of those kind of open things. It's a very open network where people can come if they want to be a part of it. All they have to do is say, we want to be a part of it. And, you know, this is what we're doing. And um, actually, another chapter in the book is one of the people that belong to We the World, um, No Judgment, Just Love. Um, and Sharon uh, Ria, actually, you know, she came to We the World and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And this is the message that I want to get out to the world you know, how do we do that together? And so it really is kind of what can we do together that I can't do by myself? And for me, um, I kind of stepped into it uh, and really looked at the campaign for uh, interdependence. And I guess I did that because from my worldview, I just see it as all related. So you can't talk about the climate and not talk about climate justice. And you can't talk about climate justice and not talk about the inherent racism that exists in our environmental struggles. And um, when you look at where things are happening and how they're happening and um, what people have access to. Um, so there isn't, it isn't like there is one subject area that is independent of the others. It's being able to, how are we going to unpack all of that um, and to support that unpacking and with a lens that, um, you know, that speaks to <clears throat> that, that uh, uh, compassion that, um, that was talked about, that speaks to that self-compassion, that how are we taking care of the, uh, not just the trauma in the world, but the trauma that exists within the, the healers of the world because every day we're exposed to that. So what are we doing about the secondary traumatic stress that um, those that serve others experience because we're human beings and we're, we have empathy. So, um, so all of that is kind of packaged in uh, We the World. Uh, and you can find out more about We the World or how you might participate in We the World by going to we.we.net, pretty simple. Um, and uh, yeah, find out more about kind of what's happening. It's just exciting. And um, in other work that I do, one of the things that I see is kind of this theme, whether it's in early childhood or it's in uh, traumatic uh, response, disaster responses, that the themes that kind of run through all of that are all of the themes that have been talked about tonight, right? And, uh, and when we think about that from, um, I was just thinking about kind of this ecumenical uh, or the kind of the, uh, the ministry, uh, Christian-based ministries and, uh, and who gets to the table and, uh, and, I often hear all of the kind of um, organized faith bases getting together at the table, but I don't often hear about our indigenous voices being at that table. Mm. And, you know, I wonder about that. And I wonder um, how we might begin to shift that uh, a bit so that we can really have that 
voice emerging. In our traditions, we all we say that we won't get into healing until um, we heal all of mankind, the sacred, what they call the sacred hoop of humanity. And what that requires is that is inclusion, inclusion of all, because without inclusion of all, you don't have the, um, you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, to really complete the, uh, the sacred hoop of humanity. And so that means, you know, whatever, wherever that knowledge, we, we tend to talk about it in directions, right? Whether that's Eastern knowledge, Western knowledge, Southern knowledge, Northern knowledge, whatever that, whatever winds are coming together. Um, but that includes peoples from and, uh, beliefs, understandings, education, uh, all of that, how that comes together. So, yeah, so I'm excited. I'm very, very grateful and honored um, to uh, be invited to the table, to be part of the conversation, um, and to uh, be on this journey and learning every day a little bit more about how we can heal together. So thanks, Brian, and thanks, everybody, for the good work that you're doing in the world. So, Well, thank you, Shannon. And um, as Shannon was mentioning, she's basically the only person who has contributed to both how to Heal Our Divides, book one, and How to Heal Our Divides, book two. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much. I'm either committed or stubborn, one of the two, Brian, right. or maybe both. <laughs> we, we all we all are. <laughs> so just to close out, there's one individual who joined us a little bit late, and I'm wondering, Noel, if you'd like to say a word or two? Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I... Uh... I've been working on a project. I'll put it in the chat for everybody, if uh, or I'll give it to you and you can pass it on. It's a video project and I'm way out of my ken in trying to pull it together, but it speaks to all of the issues of inclusion, uh, speaks to uh, <laughs> the greatest enemy we face, which is you know, ignorance and fear itself. But um, I'm as Shannon mentioned, I'm really honored to be part of this uh, group. I've never been able to use the word august before <laughs> in this fashion, but it's terrific to be. Does that mean we're old? Is that what that is? That what <laughs> no, well, I don't know. Maybe in the August of our years, if I can. <laughs> I was so nervous about having something to talk about that was pertinent that I went online as as Shannon was talking to look up uh, the uh, the f the function of music uh, because music to life of course is a support mechanism for many artists in many communities working directly with uh, causes uh, introducing people to issues perhaps that they don't have I think that's basically the most interesting thing about uh, the particular music that I've always been a part of is that many times the issues are hidden or um, not popular or not comfortable to talk about. And music has this way of bridging uh, between uh, people, either protagonists or antagonists. But I, I, I couldn't help myself. I found this quote. This was from poet William Congreve in The Morning Bride, date 1697. I think we've all heard the phrase before, but we never put a date to it. <sighs> Music has charms 
to soothe a savage breast. <laughs> and in fact, and in fact, it does provide that kind of coordinative, loving opportunity to people to come together. Now, I know many people, particularly men, Luther, maybe not you, but men in audiences that I've sung to have a reluctance to sing along. Their wives drag them to the concert. No, do I really have to? <laughs> but, but in the singing along or just in the acknowledgement that we are sharing a moment, I think on one hand, Shannon, it's very tribal, you know, to, to, to chant, to sing together, and to have, particularly when the common value is one that we all hold in our hearts. Mm. So to the extent that the book reflects music to life's direction and concern and, and capability, I think that's the surprising thing. Most people think of musicians as simply entertainers. Perhaps if they grew up in the 60s, being august as some of us are, they might be aware that it's not only uh, entertaining, but it also can be inspiring and many times informative. And to that extent, the artists, the creative uh, young artists that are collected by my daughter Liz in this organization called Music to Life provide that, whether it's in a prison or on the streets for the homeless or, or uh, whether it's in hospitals or in schools. Uh, it's been quite a remarkable realization that music of content and import did not stop in the 60s with the causes that existed then. Oh but in fact, continue on to our everyday lives. <laughs> I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that Gene Finley, who is my partner in putting together a biography, is also a very important part of Music to Life insofar as she provides the definitions in many instances for our outreach. Very cool, very cool. Well, Gene had a chance before you got on to share a little bit about Good. Music to Life and the chapter and everything, too. So um, I'm really glad to have both of you here and have both of you involved in this program. So on that note, as they say, um, <laughs> thanks so much, everyone, uh, all of you that uh, were part of this uh, book, too. Um, we'll be having more How to Heal Our Divide events, probably more How to Heal Our Divides books. But... Um, you know, we'll, we'll figure out ways to uh, get everyone involved and uh, to continue to promote awareness of all the fine work that you're doing. That's that's the number one objective of this entire program. So um, I think that's good for tonight. Um, but thanks again, everyone, uh, for joining us. And uh, God bless and have a good um, summer. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Brian. Thank you, Bob. God bless your work. Yes, Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Night, everyone. Yeah. Night. Night.